experience. I read about greed in the newspapers. I'm like, that doesn't apply to me. And especially when I think back in the years where we, you know, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. And greedy people are always people that make more money than I do or have more things than I do. And uh, if there's plenty of those people around, it's easy to feel like, God, you know, God doesn't have anything to say to me about that. And I, I hope that's not the case. I, I do want to press you and me to uh, re rethink that um, because there's some volatile things that Jesus says and the, and the scripture writers say in the Bible about greed. You know, and it's always easy to read about other people's sin problems to say, oh, I don't have that. And uh, maybe buzz past some things that God wants to say to us. So we're going to start with a little video clip here this morning and then we'll dive in. Quite dead. There's a doornail. Certificate of death, sir. Way, Predok. Dubbins Old skin flint. And by the way, if you don't know what that thing is about, the coins in the eyes comes from Greek mythology used to put coins under the dead person's tongue and then later on their eyes. That was to pay the boatmen across the river sticks from limbo to the afterlife. It's all superstition, but and think about that story. This guy has a business partner that dies and he's reluctant to pay the mortician for taking care of his friend's body 
and then he takes the money from his eyes. Tuppence is tuppence. And my guess is that's the kind of thing that many of us think about when we think about greedy people. It's like you got to have every nickel. You can't part with any of it except with reluctance and um, just a, a skin flint. One of the passages we're going to look at this morning, the main passage, though, Jesus talks about different kinds of greed. And, and what I want us to wrestle with these five weeks is whether there's a, an element of greed in our lives, and it's probably not going to be determined by how you might think it's determined. For one, there's nothing in Scripture that says, if you have this, you're greedy, and if you don't, you're not. Or if you want this, you're greedy, and if you don't, you're not. It's a much more gray thing than black and white. So the question is, is it greed to want like a new car or a new television, a robust retirement fund or a bigger salary? Or is it greed to have those things? And the answer for you or for me might be maybe, maybe not. Maybe. What I want to encourage you to do in these next five weeks is to do some, um, have some conversation with the Lord. Invite the Lord to have the Spirit examine your heart. We'll try to give you some concrete ways to make some determinations, but by and large, the, the reality is that there are some very wealthy people who are not greedy, and there are some very poor people who are very greedy. It's not necessarily what we have or don't have. It is a matter of the heart. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to look at our first scripture in the, in the Ten Commandments. Father, um, as I said, this is really kind of hard to nail down simply by ha- looking at a checklist and say, this is true, this is true, this isn't true, this is true, and now I know whether or not I'm greedy. It's not quite like that. And yet we look through the scriptures, especially as we listen to the gospels, we hear Jesus speaking. There's always this concern that Jesus has about wealth. Every time he speaks about it, it's ensconced in a warning, which should make us, especially who are Americans, a little uneasy. And I pray that your spirit would be the one who convicts, not me, that your spirit would be the one who guides the conversation with each of us individually, not me, that we would not be too quick to say, ah, that's not me, I don't have anything to concern myself with. And on the flip side, that we would not say, oh, because I have this or have this, don't have this, um, that we would not kind of heap guilt on ourselves that you don't have any intention of us bearing. I really want the Spirit to do whatever work's done these weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, beginning of verse 3. The first of the ten words or ten commandments. You must not have any other God but me. 
You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I just realized we forgot our memory verse. We'll just do that at the end, all right? I will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now, unfortunately for us as Americans, we're pretty quick to look at something like this and say, it doesn't apply to me because after all, we don't have little wood gods or little gold gods or little silver gods that we bow down to. But as Tim Keller is fond of pointing out, an idol in our lives is anything that we love more than God that matters to us more than God. Now, all of a sudden, the potential uh, application for verses on idolatry change, and the potential categories become much larger. I want to make the argument this morning that you and I, simply by virtue of being Americans, are more vulnerable to greed than much of the world. And I mean that because of how wealthy we are. And the wealthier we are, the more vulnerable we are to greed. Don't misunderstand me. The poor can be greedy as well. But the potential to have good income and a lot of stuff makes us more vulnerable, not less vulnerable to greed. John Rockefeller, probably the, one of the wealthiest persons who ever lived after Solomon was once asked, how much money is enough, Mr. Rockefeller? Some of you know the answer. Just a little bit more. When they determine what the standard of the world is when it comes to economics, the latest, uh, most recent data we have is from 2011. Five categories, and this in, uh, encompassed 80, uh, 86% of the world, I'm sorry, 88% of the world. They determine whether people around the world, this is about 7 billion people at that time, are you uh, poor, are you uh, lower uh, middle class, are you middle class, are you upper middle class, or are you uh, high class, class not right, but income bracket. This was determined based on how many dollars you needed to live on a day. The poor live on $2 or less a day. You do the math, six to $700 a year, you live on, you survive on now, the high-income bracket is $50 or more a day. You live on $50 or more a day. Even that's not a lot by our standards, is it? Do the math, $18,000-plus a year. Most of us say, I couldn't live on that. $50 a day or more. If you take the two top brackets, the second-highest bracket is the upper-middle-income middle income bracket is $20.01 a day up to $50. So you live on $20 to $50 a day. Out of, uh, out of the world's uh, people, Americans, we fit into 88% of us fit in the top two brackets, one of the top two brackets. And you compare that to what the world lives on, and like, well, we, we really have it pretty good. And it's interesting despite that, how many of us are uh, up to our eyeballs in debt? 
the average household, American household, has uh, almost $16,000 in credit card debt. How'd you, get to the, how'd you get into that debt? Well, private interviews of those folks, 41% of them admitted that they got there because they bought things they really didn't need. So we have a lot of resources. We, we live well by the world's standards, and yet it's still not enough for many of us. We're buying things that we don't need. We have American income, which is really good. We have American debt, which is really bad. Fundamental problem, this is what I want to argue the next f number of weeks. The fundamental problem is, are we looking at our resources or money as a form of salvation, American salvation? First question I want us to ask ourselves, and this is, again, with these two questions to kind of resonate in the back of our minds for the upcoming weeks. One, is my money and my possessions, are they my treasure? Are the things that I have and the things that I can buy, money that I can buy them with, are those resources my treasure? Let me have you look at a, a passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 18, beginning verse 22. Now, some of you knew this story. A man came to Jesus. He was well off. He was young. So perhaps his money came via inheritance, or perhaps he had been really successful in business early in life. Maybe a dot-com kind of guy. A lot of money. But he was not only interested in money. He's interested in the next life. He's interested in spiritual things. So he goes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus talks to him first about the commandments that speak about our relationships with other people. It was interesting. He didn't mention the, relationship, the commandments that speak about our relationship with God. And so he says to him, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't covet. And the guy got all excited. He said, yeah, I've, I've kept all of those commandments since I was a little kid. And Jesus then says this to him, <clears throat> beginning verse 22. There's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. I don't know about you, but when I read passages of scripture that I'm very uncomfortable with, I tend to read them fast and move on to something else that doesn't cause as much disconcert, uh, disconcertment to me. And this has always been one of those passages. And I rationalize it, don't you? Like, Jesus, you can't be serious. It's seven, degree, seven degrees this morning. If I sell my house and give the money that I get for selling my house to poor people, I have to find some place to stay or I'm going to freeze to death. Somebody has to have a house for me, so why should I buy my own? And if I don't have a car... I sell my car and I give the money away. How am I going to get to church? How am I going to get to my job? I'm going to be like the Amish and I have to call up a driver. Need, somebody needs to have a car to get me to work or get me to church, get me somewhere. And if I sell my food or I sell my television or I sell this, I, and then I'm going to have to lean in on other people and get them to provide for me what I no longer have. 
Do you do that? The rationalization? God can't. Jesus certainly was not serious. And then we hear the man's response. Verse 23. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very, what? Rich. Why was he sad? Because Jesus had just presented him with a conundrum. You can have one, you can have the other, but you can't have both. Why? Because he knew this was his treasure. He might not ask this of you, he might not ask this of me, but he had to ask it of this man because it was his treasure. The money that he had, the stuff that he could buy with it, treasure, so much so that he was willing to forfeit eternal life if that was the cost. Ask yourself the question, is my money, my stuff, the treasure, in that I cannot be happy without it? I think that's the measurement. In that I cannot be happy without it if I don't have it. It becomes a form of salvation in that I have to have it. The other question to ask about our money and uh, the stuff that it can buy, is it, is it my security? Is it my security? In other words, I won't have enough without it. By enough mean things I have to have or what I have to uh, have, what I need from it. Let me take you to an Old Testament book of Habakkuk. <clears throat> Habakkuk. This is probably where you find, if you can't find it, or fresh pages haven't been turned recently. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 9, the second part of verse 9. You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. See, these are things that God's supposed to do for us, the security that he's to provide for us, the treasure that he's to be for us. I wonder how many of us are putting together a retirement fund based on this fear I don't know what I'm going to need, so I have to put away, I have to put away, I have to put away, I have to put away. I've shared before the story. Um, I was 46 before Keystone uh, was able to provide a retirement fund for me. And I was getting scared. Here I am in you know, mid-40s, mid-60s, not that far away. And uh, I had a friend, a pastor friend, that I confided in from time to time about my financial fears. I think it was about the fourth time I had shared my fear about what the future would hold for me when I came to retirement, and he got a little impatient with me. And he said, Keith, who's going to provide for you in retirement? And I'm like, yeah, that's the question I've been asking. And he just was quiet. And then it sunk in what he's saying. Keith, you're worried about you providing for your retirement. And you should be counting on God providing 
for you, whatever you need in the years ahead. Is God your security or is that retirement fund your security? Back in the 90s, a lot of people's retirement funds got wiped out in the uh, financial bubble that burst in 96 to 99. And I remember Ron Mayer telling me, he said, I have people coming into my office saying, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm retired now and my assets just got wiped out. See, this, this is the problem. It doesn't matter how well we prepare. Something might happen to eradicate all of our best made preparations. If we put it in the fund, if our confidence and our security is in the fund or in the money or in the stuff we have, there's a false hope. If our treasure is in the money or the stuff it can buy, it's a, it's a false treasure. It can be gone like that. A lawsuit, a medical crisis, investments, the economy just goes south. It's one thing to prepare, do the best we can to prepare for it, for the unexpected. But at the end of the day, where's our confidence? That's what God's asking. This is what Jesus was asking this rich young ruler. Now, let me, let me make some comments about uh, economics. And this might sound odd to you. But I'm going to make the argument that there's some value in greed. Milton Friedman, who was probably the um, most uh, prominent economist in the 20th century, wrote, the problem of social organization is how to set up an arrangement under which greed will do the least harm. He's not a believer. But recognized that greed is fraught with danger. So how can we set up something where it will do the least harm? He says capitalism is that kind of system. Now, I believe in capitalism. Uh, I'm a fan of capitalism. And the reason for that is that capitalism has found a way to harness greed to benefit others. A couple examples. And people economically much smarter than me can probably come up with dozens and dozens. But here's one. So if a man has a business and he wants to make a lot of money, in order to do that, he's going to need to keep reliable and gifted workers, which means he's going to have to pay those workers better than he might otherwise pay them, wanting to keep more of the money for himself, in order that they're not stolen away by a competitor. Follow that? So he, he's greedy to make a lot of money in his business, but he knows in order to do that, he has to have good, competent um, long-term workers, so he's going to have to pay them more than he might otherwise pay them. And now the benefit trickles down to them. He has workers who have more money in their pockets. They can buy more things and create more jobs for other people. I know the progressive left has taken a lot of pot shots at the whole cliche of trickle-down economics, but I believe it works in capitalism. It doesn't work in socialism. By the way, that's one of the reasons that I'm a big fan of capitalism and not socialism. I've walked the streets of places like Vientiane, Laos, and Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, and Cairo, Egypt, where socialism is the rule of the day. Every place it's tried, it's failed. 
Cuba, China, Russia. And you might point to some European states today that are socialistic, or China is just still socialistic, and say there's, you know, China is a booming economy. But you look at China and you look at the European states like Germany and so forth, and what the reason that they're successful or it works is because it's been well diluted with capitalism. To make a lot of money, an employer, says another example, an employer must make quality products and then stand behind them. In other words, if he's looking to make a lot of money over the long term, he can't just make junk that he sells and gets out the door today because he won't have any repeat customers. He knows he has to make a good product. By the way, go to socialistic countries and look at their products. He has to make a good product and then he has to be able to stand behind it. So his greed is, is, is really um, creating products that people like you and I are willing to buy because we know they're going to last long and they have good warranties behind them. Now, let me look at the other side of the coin. There's a danger um, to us with capitalism. And some of us older baby boomers and baby busters are looking at the affection that the millennial generation and the younger generations have for socialism, and we're kind of flipping out, and we're like, oh, you have no idea what's ahead if you embrace that. Maybe true. But, uh, 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 for the culture, for the society. But personally, individually, here's a danger. I think that some of us who are older have almost a religious zeal for capitalism. And because of that, we look at what we have, what we earn, what we buy, and we kind of justify it because we're, we're contributing to this good system of capitalism. We think it's, it's good. And don't listen carefully to the warnings that Jesus packs when he talks about money. And as I said, you can read the gospel accounts and show me if I've missed one. But every time that Jesus talks about money, he talks about it with concern. Every time. And I think we sh should be very careful to distinguish between our faith in the gospel and our faith in capitalism. They shouldn't be the same. There is a value in greed, but we have to be very, very, very careful. All right, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. It's kind of my main, main point this morning. It took me a while to get to it. Luke chapter 12. And we're going to talk about the danger of greed. Beginning, excuse me, beginning of verse 13. And then someone called from the crowd, teacher, he's talking to Jesus, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, as a pastor... I'm thinking Jesus should say, okay, I'll sit down and help you work that out. That's kind of what we, we pastors do. People call us up and say, I have this problem. Can you kind of help me sort it out? Like, sure, we'll try it. And Jesus does not do that. 
He replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Now, I want you to notice something here. There's nothing illegal or immoral about what the young man wants. Nothing illegal or immoral. And it's true. You look through the scriptures, and a lot of times that greed is spoken about, it's spoken about in, concern, in terms of concern that people are going to do illegal or immoral things to get the money or the stuff that they want. That's not the case here. And yet Jesus says in verse 15, beware, beware, warning, guard against every kind of greed. Remember we talked about the varieties of greed earlier? Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how you, uh, much you own. And then he goes on to give an illustration. And you'll notice in the story that he tells, again, nothing illegal, nothing immoral. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. This is just good business practices. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Make every day New Year's Eve. <laughs> what doesn't say that? Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. And then who's going to get what, everything that you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship toward God. Now, the word in Scripture that's typically used for greed is in the, in the New Testament, pleonexia, but it's really the same word that's used in Hebrew in the Old Testament. It primarily means covetousness. The short definition, desire to have more. Now, if we go back to the Ten Commandments and we read about do not covet, we see all these things that are wrong, all these things that are immoral or illegal. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your, covet your neighbor's donkey or Lexus. Don't cover, covet your neighbor's uh, manservant, maidservant, or robotic vacuum cleaner. I don't know. Don't covet. In other words, don't covet stuff other people have. And we see that like, okay, that's adultery, that's theft, those kinds of things. And we know, we know God wouldn't want us to steal. We know he doesn't want us to commit adultery. But we have to move that context into today where there are consumer goods that our neighbors have that we want. And we're not going to steal our neighbor's Lexus, but we, we'd like to have enough money to go to the, down to the dealership and buy our own. After all, our neighbor has a black one. We'd really like to have a red one. The longing to have more is not just an illegal thing. It's not just an immoral thing. It can be a soul-destroying thing. And listen, you can have that desire whether you are making $100,000 a year or $22,000 a year. In fact, I remember when 
we were struggling to put gas in the car. Man, did I want a lot of things because I didn't have them. The desire to have more. Now, some people will do anything to get more. And so they are willing to break the law. They are willing to disobey man's laws. They're willing to disobey God's laws. In fact, that's really the story of the Bible, isn't it? Starting in Genesis chapter 3. I want to have godness so much that I'm going to defy the one rule that God gave me in the Garden of Eden. Disobey God. I want so much, and my reasoning may be justified or maybe unjustified, but I want it so much, I'm willing to do this. If you're relatively new to Keystone, you may not know, we had an embezzlement um, some years back where we had an administrative assistant that stole almost $100,000 from the church. And when we figured it out, caught her and confronted her, she admitted she had a... Um, a lifestyle, she was divorced and her previous husband was very well off and she was accustomed to a certain lifestyle. And she had a, an only son that she didn't want to deprive of that ongoing lifestyle. And so some of the things that she bought with the church's money was so frivolous, but I want it so bad. And my guess is there's nobody in here that's willing, that would say, I want something so bad that I'm willing to steal it. I'm willing to break some kind of law to have it. And yet if push came to shove, you'd have to admit, yeah, that's my treasure. Got to have it. I can't lose it. Or it's my security. Can't lose it. And when those two questions, when you check the boxes of those two questions, it's my treasure, it's my security, you have ventured into the world of greed that Jesus is so concerned about. Because your stuff and your money now matters more than Jesus does. Your stuff and your money is going to supply you with what Jesus is here to supply you with. We tend, when we are greedy, we tend to make important things unimportant, and we make unimportant things important. So, for example, work 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, to the neglect of your family. Maybe neglect to share money with God or help others in need. And, and, and let me... Um, metal here just for a minute. One of the things that we can do, and I've been guilty of it, is that we can give to God whatever percentage we give him. And, and maybe because it's a higher percentage than we think he asks, we kind of feel justified now in buying all the stuff we want and in keeping the rest of the money to ourselves. Brothers and sisters, and I'm, I'm speaking to you who know Christ, it's not a tenth of your money and property that God owns. It's all of it. It's all of it. 
We might only give him a tenth, or we might give him 15 or 20 percent, but he owns all of it. And the question is, does, do you really need all that's left? Some of you know about uh, Rick, Pastor Rick Warren um, has made a boatload of money on his book, The Purpose Driven Life. And made so much that he, has, he doesn't take a salary from Saddleback Church. And he paid back all of the prior salary that they paid him up to when the money started coming in for the book. And he lives on 10% of his income and gives 90% away. We tend to make things unimportant that are important and make things important that are unimportant. Maybe our relationships suffer because we're so invested in either our business or maybe our business plus our side ventures, maybe our apartments and so forth. It takes a lot of time to do all that stuff. One of the things that I noticed as I got more possessions is that it just took more time to maintain them. I have to keep them fixed. I have to keep them oiled. I have to make sure they work. It just takes more time. And this time that I invest in the things or time that takes away from people, whether it's my family or my neighbors. Maybe it's that ministry gets curtailed or eliminated because I have so much to do. Maybe it's that I get my worth from how much money I have or the things that I have. Well, listen, <laughs> by virtue of the gospel, we're to get what we're worth from Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? We're to get what we're worth based on the fact that Jesus went to the cross for us. Not based on the fact that we have a certain car in the garage or a certain size house, number of rooms, or the way it looks on the outside, the kind of job that we have, a prestigious one, a professional job. God never intended us to get our worth from any of that stuff. First of all, it's not secure. It's not sure. It can be gone tomorrow. I think sometimes some of the things that God takes from us, he, he, he takes from us just to show us, I really am all you need. I really am. He doesn't do it to punish us. I think we have sometimes a, a real warped idea of, you know, God takes this from me because he's trying to punish me. No, sometimes God takes things from us because he wants to draw us closer to him. He loves us so much and he wants us to love him so much. And sometimes there's stuff between us and him that make us hard, make it hard for us to love him. Objects of our affections that are in the road. Eric Fromm, I don't usually quote guys like him, but Eric Fromm was a disciple of Sigmund Freud. He said something's true. Greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. Have you ever bought something you really, really, really wanted? And months later, weeks later maybe, 
That'd be years later. It's like, why? I can't remember. It doesn't fulfill me now the way it used to. Some of you know about this kitchen. I was, you know, I was dreaming for years about building a kitchen for my wife. And I was thinking about it this morning. It's almost two years ago now that I finished it. And, and I still love it. But, you know, you get something that you want so bad, and now it's time to move on to the next thing you want so bad. It just doesn't satisfy the way we thought it would. I mean, look at your kids at Christmas. You got something that your kid was longing for, your son or daughter wanted so much. And here you are five days out, and they're playing with the box, right? It just doesn't have staying power. And that could be the same way it is for us. Let me close reading a couple verses out of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 15. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Don't miss the black and white nature of that. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. We're going to kind of look at this thing of greed from a variety of angles the next number of weeks. But I I, I beg you, I, I want you and I want me to be on a journey that allows God the Spirit to speak into our lives. Like I said, when I would read, there's, greed is often mentioned in these sin lists in the New Testament. And when I would read them, I would kind of skip over them because it's not me. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it even goes so far as to say that that greedy people, listen, greedy people will not enter the kingdom of God. If that's the case, I want very much to know what greed is and whether I'm marked by it. Because that's a big deal. And for us in prosperous United States and in prosperous Lancaster County, we of all people need to ask those hard questions. I hope you will with me in the weeks to come. Father, I want my treasure to be my Savior. I want my Savior to be my security. I don't know that that's always the case. Well, I know it's not always the case. And I pray in the weeks ahead that I would allow you to speak to me. First, on the side of the diagnosis. And then second, on the side of what do I do now?
and I pray that for my brothers and sisters as well, that money would become something that we use and use for your glory and use for the needs of people in this world and not just to fulfill our cravings. And when we get home to glory, as we look back at all that stuff that we'd accumulated, all the money that we depended on, maybe we are able to say, you know what? There was a day when it began to lose its luster. And there was a day when I began to turn more and more of it over to my God. And there was a day when I began to really believe that God would take care of me no matter what. And that he became my security instead of all that I had in the bank. In Jesus' name, amen.